Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sneaky Powerful Podcast, a podcast dedicated to somatic experiencing. My name is Ali Capurro and I'm a therapist in Boise, Idaho. I'm also an SE enthusiast. On today's episode of Sneaky Powerful, I'm doing it a little bit different. Today I'm going to be talking without a guest and sharing some of the information about somatic experiencing to answer questions I've received and I also wanted to share some of my own personal experiences that over time I've found to be extremely challenging and hard but also sometimes hilarious. I'm going to attempt in today's episode to speak to people that are unfamiliar with somatic experiencing as well as provide some entertainment to those who are familiar with somatic experiencing. Um, So I went directly to the traumahealing.org website and I've read this before I think in my trailer episode but Somatic experiencing is a body-oriented therapeutic model applied in multiple professions and professional settings. I love this actually, personally, because it, it includes psychotherapy, medicine, coaching, teaching, and physical therapy. Those are some of the examples anyway. And it is for healing trauma and other stress disorders. It is based on a multidisciplinary intersection of physiology, psychology, ethology, biology, neuroscience, indigenous healing practices, and medical biophysics. And it's been clinically applied for more than four decades. And it's the life's work of Dr. Peter A. Levine. So again, just looking at this website, The SE approach releases traumatic shock, which is key to transforming PTSD and the wounds of emotional and early developmental attachment trauma. It offers a framework to assess where a person is stuck in the fight, flight, or freeze responses and provides clinical tools to resolve these fixated physiological states. SE provides effective skills appropriate to a variety of healing professions, including mental health, medicine, physical and occupational therapies, body work, addiction treatment, first response, education, and others. So I'm going to skip down to the how it works part, and you are welcome, obviously, to look this up on the Trauma Healing website, but um, today... Before I talk about how it works, today I want to share that I I got stuck, let's see, I lived a lot of life stuck in the fight response, and then when I was about 21, it's like I flipped into the flight and freeze responses, and um, yeah, the fight was way more comfortable, probably less likable, but way more comfortable. Flight and freeze are pretty distressing for me. Probably a lot of people. Um, Anyway, so let's see how it works. The somatic experiencing approach facilitates the completion of self 
protective motor responses and the release of thwarted survival energy bound in the body, thus addressing the root cause of trauma symptoms. And so let's see, I can actually speak to, um, speak to what I want to talk about after that sentence because so I have sexual abuse in my trauma past and I want to share with you that I'm going to be tending to myself as I talk today and I'm going to be using somatic experiencing with myself so even as I share that I have had that in my past I'm going to increase my awareness of my overall well-being because I know that it's really triggering for me still. So to do that, I'm going to just notice right away the floor that I'm sitting on as I speak into my microphone. And I'm going to let myself kind of settle into that support of the floor and feel a little more grounded as I talk just to be sure that even mentioning sexual abuse didn't get me too disorganized in my system. And then I notice a deeper breath, which is for me an indicator that some settling is happening. And I also notice that I feel a little less um, constricted and upward in my shoulders and neck when I took that deeper breath, I noticed that my shoulders kind of expanded and my face and neck kind of um, dropped in a little bit instead of having this upward forward orientation. So that right there is something that prior to my somatic experiencing training I would have had little to no access to. And that right there is why I love somatic experiencing. It's offered me a way to take care of myself, which um, I had been trying to gain for a lot of years. And I had made progress, but uh, this modality just increased the progress and effectiveness of my um, efforts, gosh, exponentially. So that said, um, so this, well, I'll just say recently, I was in a situation where I had to ride, or I didn't have to, I guess, but I elected to challenge one of my symptoms of trauma, which uh, from my sexual abuse, part of the trauma identified specifically in somatic experiencing is inescapable attack. And so some of my symptoms involve being in situations where I don't feel like I can get out or escape feels inhibited or actually even potentially inhibited. Over time, it's changed and evolved a little bit, but at its worst, that list included planes, elevators, bathrooms, um, even, even like physician exam rooms. Sometimes if, um, a room didn't have a window and I wasn't 
sure I could trust the door to unlock, there would be hypervigilance until I got out of that room. Um, what else? How else? Oh, sometimes um, cars, especially automatically locking cars. And so this is where the kind of interweaving of hard and hilarious gets exemplified because it was terribly hard <clears throat> in those moments I can remember being in San Francisco and being in um, an acquaintance's car with my cousin and some friends and I was in the back seat on the outside and I saw the um, automatic locks go down and it went the lock it was on kind of on the top by the window and it went beneath where beneath, so it was flush with uh, I don't even know the door I'll just say that and so I couldn't pull it up if I needed to so the entire time I'm in the car I'm trying not to freak out and I'm like oh my gosh what if I can't get out and that became my nightmare until we got to where we were headed and that was pretty constant for several years um, and just so exhausting running on that level of hypervigilance but something in me my nervous system was like convinced that um, if I couldn't get out the danger would be severe and now that I know what I know, I have to res I don't have to again. <laughs> I choose to respect that. Because at one point in my life, that was very true. And so just because my nervous system doesn't know that that threat is not happening now, I have a lot of respect for the high level survival physiology that it summons when there is a threat, even if it's inaccurate. Don't get me wrong, it's super annoying and frustrating and I still get very mad at myself a lot of the time, but having language and an understanding of why has helped me soften toward it, soften toward myself, and then actually allow an increased capacity to potentially heal it. So, um, Inescapable attack doesn't have to be, it's not limited to sexual abuse or assault, but it's one of the subcategories. And it's what I'm going to be talking about today as I weave my way through somatic experiencing today. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I think I was talking about riding on elevators. <laughs> so recently I had the opportunity to challenge my, my trauma and uh, I've, I've built capacity to challenge trauma over time and I went on a bunch of elevators. And it's so funny because to some people, to most people I know, elevators are, it's like, walking into a different bedroom or something. It's so casual. For me, I, I compare it to either maybe stepping into a box that's on fire or um, I had another example that I thought 
described it pretty well. Um, oh, <laughs> like I saw we were getting some clothes for one of my daughters and there was this really tiny elevator, which is like the worst. And for me, it's like watching people step into a death trap or like a, a coffin or something. My perception is so skewed. And even talking about it right now, I can feel energy in my limbs and my hands and my wrists and um, kind of a churning cyclone feeling in my gut. Um, and then a little bit of uh, teariness. So again, here's where I'm going to use what I've learned through somatic experiencing. I'm going to tend to that instead of ignore it and keep talking. I'm going to slow down, acknowledge it, acknowledge the pieces of it. For example, the pieces of the sadness that something so simple is so hard for me, the sadness of why it's so hard to begin with, the trauma that, um, that is the origin of these symptoms and also um, the the duration of trying to work with this trauma is is frustrating and how it's limited me and as I acknowledge that I think our bracing against that tends to be because we think we'll feel worse if we acknowledge all of that. And what I know now is that I actually feel better and more settled and actually more proud of myself. Um, you know, I sit with clients most days for long days and uh, the courage that it takes to face these things inspires me consistently and through my work with clients it also helps me feel somewhat inspired with myself by myself so back to the elevator so <laughs> there we are I'm with my family and we are on the elevator and my youngest daughter is like ready to jump and I'm looking at her with the opposite of the beam gleam, as Diane Poole Heller describes the loving gaze. I think it's the beam gleam. Anyway, I'm looking at her with like evil eyes, like do not. Because for me, the elevator, it you, you do everything right. You only hit one button. You don't move until you get off because... If the doors close, or sorry, if the doors, they're going to close. If the doors don't open, it's over. That's where it's like, oh my gosh, not, no, not even. So when she bends her knees, I'm like, do not, do not. And then it reminds me of, I don't know anyone out there that's seen that Christmas movie Elf with Will Ferrell where he lights up the elevator buttons and he's like, it's like a Christmas tree. I, I get anxiety every time I see that, um, that movie, that part of the movie. I'm just so oriented toward 
danger in an elevator and anything that might increase the potential of those doors not opening brings on a little bit of my fight response. It's really tightly connected though because then it also brings on the flight where I'm like, and I must get off now. So, um, so yeah, so I got to spend some time going on elevators and get familiar with, uh, re-familiarized because I, there are no elevators where I live. And, um, so it was, it was a reminder of what I wanted to share with, with you all as, as the audience of what it's like living with trauma symptoms and specifically symptoms that feel embarrassing or um, frustrating or limiting, (laughs) very limiting. So in working with inescapable attack or this survival physiology that gets uh, activated when I challenge myself and get on elevators, there's a lot of things happening simultaneously. For me, it um, it involves, like I was just mentioning, kind of the fight and flight, but there's also the freeze and the submit. And what I would really want people out there to hear is that this is all decided by your subcortical brain reasonability goes offline our prefrontal cortex is less accessible when we if not completely inaccessible when we are in these states of high arousal and so I have these competing impulses to fight and get mad for example when someone misbehaves in an elevator according to my rules um but there's also a freeze. Uh, there was one time where I tried to, <laughs> I thought, I thought that if I could just get on them and just start going on them, that the fear would go away. I tried that with planes too, but it totally sucked and didn't work. Um, so I got an elevator and it had windows because that felt like a smidge safer. So I get on this elevator. This was so many years ago, but I had been on so few elevators, and if I did happen to get on an elevator, I did not, I just froze, and I did not hit the button, I wasn't in charge of, um, you know, which floor, I basically probably dissociated and regretted my decision to get on the elevator, and then when I did get off, tried to regain the feeling of my legs. so I, I decided to challenge myself. I get on this elevator by myself and I literally think I hit the button, which it was not the actual button, but I hit what looked like a button, but it didn't go in at all. But I didn't have the composure or, or presence of mind to even recognize that. And it doesn't move. And I'm like, oh my gosh, here it is. I'm stuck. The one I try and now I'm stuck and those <laughs> looking at it now because it was several years ago, I, I feel for myself, but, um, it just, it just seems so funny because 
I didn't know. I didn't know how to even work an elevator. And I was at that time in my 20s. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> proud of that young version of, younger version of me, but uh, that was kind of the example of freeze. Like just this inability to take care of myself in a situation because my go-to in my mind was, oh, I'll just wait until someone comes to hit the button or go on the elevator and then eventually I'll get off. Um, and that makes me think of another piece of this inescapable attack, um, which is probably, let's see, I'm checking my notes here. And one of the things with an escapable attack is, and when escape is inhibited, is that sometimes the victim has misinterpreted the behaviors of others, such as assuming no one was helping. Um, and because there was a threat to me speaking about what happened to me, and it was very dangerous to speak about what happened, I think the younger version of myself also had a perception that no one helped me. And and it's kind of frustrating because they didn't know. But then that that's like a rabbit trail because I also did have a lot of symptoms like chronic stomach aches and uh, insomnia, um, just to name a few. So, but this comes up as when I was talking to my younger daughter recently about elevators and both daughters are like, why are you afraid? One of them had even asked me at one point, what are you afraid of? And I said that they won't open, the doors won't open. And she's like, yeah, but someone will come and get us. And that felt honestly like a real victory that, that I have these kids that have this feeling that someone will come for us because of my trauma and the way it was experienced and the fact that it was chronic it um it took away that that safety um what do I want to say here it just took away that feeling that someone would come for me So that's also a piece of the healing process that I've identified, identified over time. So now I'll take a minute to do some settling work. I'll put my hand on my heart. Again, I'll notice the floor that I'm sitting on. Slow down a little bit and give the sadness that came up some time to move through, see what it wants to do. I'm also going to look around with my eyes and do some exploratory orienting to remember that I'm safe now and that there's hope. There's hope for healing and I've made it some of the way. <laughs> Since beginning this podcast, I've had several people ask, not only what is somatic experiencing and uh, desire to know more about it, but also how, how do you heal this trauma? So I'll speak through 
my own experience and my experience with somatic experiencing. Um, I have worked with a therapist for a long time and that has been an important part of my healing, but it wasn't until five-ish years ago that I was exposed to somatic experiencing and then got an opportunity to work with somatic experiencing practitioners because that's a required part of the three-year training program. Um, and it's all contributed greatly, all of it. EMDR, uh, narrative, narrative therapy, um, what else have I done? Acupuncture, massage therapy, physical therapy. It's, it's all contributed and helped me know myself, my body, my sensations in a way to kind of befriend them, honestly, even though they don't feel so friendly sometimes. Um, but for me, my journey has involved a lot of ups and downs, uh, forward and backward movement, and a lot of what I call magic. And I don't, I use the word not to deny science at all, but as kind of the spiritual component that I've found to be present when, especially when I, um, I am feeling more bold and I'll, uh, to close up, I'll share a story, but there's a few things I, I want to say before I get there. Um, so the process has been building the capacity to tolerate distress, working in titrated ways with this immense energy, survival energy that is creating these sensations and then dealing with the origin of the trauma, the T0 as we call it in SE, in again titrated ways so that I'm not overwhelmed so that I can build capacity to tolerate what happened to me. Um, not reliving. I don't want to mislead anyone. I don't, I don't go through every detail when I do my work with my, um, my professionals, but, uh, but I do try to bring back online some of the things that were lost. Some of my fight responses or my flight responses the things that were inhibited and if you if you do more research on somatic experiencing I imagine you'll be just blown away in regards to how our bodies hold this and how they're basically constantly telling a story whether we observe it and aware are aware of it or not um so what I was going to share was the magic part of it to close up because my, my journey has been an ongoing process and a lot of um, really cool things have happened, which I tend to forget about when I'm not in the cool things. But um, this story co comes from a long time ago. I wish I was trying, I should find that quote. I think it's Gosh, I don't even want to say it because I'll say it wrong. Let me see if I can find it. Darn it, y'all. It requires that I speak, use some German. 
It's from the playwright, the great German playwright and thinker, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, G-O-E-T-H-E. And the version of what I want to share is what you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And um, so I want to share that after I started to have panic attacks and I switched into, not by choice, but flight freeze and kind of out of a fight response, I tried to fly. I used to be able to fly when I was in fight. I was never regulated, let's just say that, (laughs) rarely regulated. But I used to be able to fly, and then after I started to have panic attacks and had that freeze flight response, flying became very challenging, um, too impossible. And so I decided that I was going to just try it, and I was maybe, what would I have been, maybe 22. It was like literally months after September 11th, 2001. It was the, ne- the following May. So it would have been 2002 and um, I was with one of my dearest friends and we get on this plane and it's a short flight and we get on there and we sit down and I'm kind of in freeze, kind of in flight, using freeze to make myself stay on the plane, talk about white knuckling it and I'm sitting there and she looks at me and she says, how are you doing? And I said, I don't want to do this. And she's like, are you serious? And I'm like, I'm very serious. Let's get off this plane. And uh, she said, hold on. And I was like, okay. (laughs) I don't want to, but okay. And she got up. Oh, because another piece of, so the, the flight had, let me think, a layover. Basically, we would be getting on and off a plane four times in this trip, round trip. And in retrospect, looking back, it's crazy because this was the only time we saw the pilot, this first flight. He was with the flight attendants greeting the passengers. And he was super friendly, young, nice. I think his name's Craig. And he holds a dear spot in my heart to this day. But, um, She got, so my friend gets back up and I don't know what she's doing, but she goes and talks to Craig and the pilot and he comes back and points at me and he's like, you come with me. And in my mind, I don't know, I'm going to do what he says, first of all, but second, I'm like, okay, what, how is this going to help? What's going to help? And he took me, which is like the cutest, best story ever. He took me into the cockpit. And remember, this is in the United States, post 9-11. He took me into the cockpit and he let me sit in the, what would you call that? Darn it. Not his seat. But anyway, one of the seats in the cockpit. And he said, he took off his hat, his pilot's cap and he had a picture of a very young cute little baby boy and he said if this weren't safe I would not be doing it and he said wheels to wheels this 
first part of the flight's 26 minutes, which 26 is one of my lucky numbers. And um, he asked what I was afraid of and basically restored my faith in everything. And I consider that a magic moment. Um, And it's my pleasure to share that story because it's one of my favorite stories of my entire life. And so, yeah, so when I can remember that boldness is uh, part of this life journey, sometimes we're met. We're met. Um, I've heard, I've heard Peter's quote, I think he said he got it from an indigenous culture, and I wish I could attribute it to where it belongs but basically the the paraphrased version I heard from, I think, one of the trainers, probably Abby Blakesley, was, um, I give thanks for the help that's already on its way. And so, to all of you out there, to all of my listeners, I appreciate you so much. And thanks for listening to my rambling about inescapable attack. Um, elevators and planes (laughs) and I will pursue my healing giving thanks for the help that's already on its way so thank you for listening to the sneaky powerful podcast information about somatic experiencing can be found at traumahealing.org there's even a practitioner directory if you're interested in getting or working with a somatic experiencing practitioner. Um, Information about me and the Sneaky Powerful podcast is sneakypowerful.com. And our next episode is going to be with Dr. Alice Kirby. I'm really looking forward to that. And we'll see you next time.